Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Something that were it not for listener Matthew Daly nearly resulted in this being the final episode of Season 8. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Dearest Brenda, that's the name of a file found on the Courtney's computer and marked by the forensic examiner as a document of interest. I've spent the last several days looking into this document, and it is indeed something of interest. The file was created on October 2nd, exactly one month before the murders of Lloyd and Agnes Courtney. But it wasn't written by either of the Courtney's. It's a letter that was typed out on the Courtney's computer by Deborah to her sister Brenda. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Dearest Brenda, I hope this letter finds you and James in good spirits. Angela received a letter from Sarah. Of course she was thrilled. She just mailed Sarah a picture and a short letter and hopes Sarah will continue to write her. It makes her feel special as she adores Sarah. I regret not letting the girls together more over the years. I regret not spending more time with you these last few years. My redacted caused me to pull away from the family and most of my friends. I did the best I could do, but it wasn't good enough for my standards. I recently in Redacted going through the delayed Redacted program. I was there for three weeks in September and have been home for three weeks. I apologize for not calling, but the program was so intense that I really didn't want to talk to anyone for a while. I guess I was afraid people would ask questions about the program, and I didn't want to talk about it. It has been difficult dealing with both problems at the same time. The Redacted and Redacted and the memories of Redacted. But I have several reasons that keep me fighting. Paul, you, Sarah, and especially Angela. I don't want her to remember her childhood being void of her mother because she was always in a Redacted. I want you to know that I really enjoyed coming over and having dinner with you. I have always enjoyed being with you. I may not have always said it, but I want you to know that I am very, very proud of you. I remember where you came from and where you are now. Not many people could accomplish what you have. I may not tell you, but I tell anyone else who will listen about your accomplishments. I had the rare chance to pick my sister, and I have never regretted having picked you. I love you more than I could ever express, and I will always be by your side. You mean so much to me, and I hope that in the days and months to come, we can become closer. 
I want us to spend more time together, whether it's in person or just talking on the phone. I miss you. We always seem to laugh so much when we're together, and I need that. I haven't been laughing much lately. One thing, though, I can't be the only one who calls. You need to call me so that I know you care about us also. Okay? Now about mom and dad. While I was at Redacted, I had a lot of time to think about your problems with them. I remember feeling the same way about them you do now. Not feeling like they were proud of me and were disappointed in me. And while I was going over these things in my mind, I realized that I didn't feel that way anymore and I wondered what happened. I took a good look at them and saw that they were still the same. What surprised me was realizing that I was the one who had changed. I no longer looked to them for the strokes I needed all my life. You mentioned at dinner that you get acceptance and compliments from James' parents that you don't feel you get from mom and dad. You know, I realized that I got my needed strokes from Paul's mom, Edie. That's why I adored her so much. She accepted me in a way that I could understand. She was always saying nice things to me and telling her friends and family how lucky her family was to have me in it. When she died, I felt such a void and I realized I needed to replace her strokes with someone else's. Now I get strokes from Paul, much like you do from James. But the strokes I got from Edie were a very special kind. I guess it was because they were strokes I had always longed for from mom and dad, the ones they were not capable of giving me. Brenda, I want you to work on getting to the point that I am at with our parents. It is not that they are ashamed of you or not proud of you. They just show it the best way they know how. It just isn't the way we need to hear and see it. Remember when we bought our first house and you, mom, dad, Margaret, Eddie, and babe came over? Paul and I still joke about it being the visit from hell. Neither mom or dad said how proud they were of us or how nice the house was. I cried for a long time after that. I think that was when Paul said, to hell with both of them. Of course, he has reconciled his feelings about them and loves and cares about them. But it was touch and go for a while. Mom and dad come from a different world. I doubt if they ever got the strokes they needed. If you don't get what you need as a child, then you have great difficulty showing it as an adult. I'm not trying to excuse them for all the times they didn't act appropriately. I am just hoping you can better understand who they are and where they are coming from. Believe me, they can still irritate the hell out of me. But since I started looking at them in a new light, I find that I am better able to express my feelings to them. When they do something that I think they shouldn't have done, I tell them. When they say something that just isn't right, I mean mom here, I let them know. I have spoken up more in the last year than I ever have in my entire life, and boy, it sure feels great. I want you to know that I told mom that the letter she sent Sarah was wrong. While I was at Redacted, I sent mom and dad a letter. I told mom that it was okay to have her beliefs about things, but that before she said anything to the person or people she needed to weigh very carefully the possible consequences that could arise from speaking her mind. Not everybody believes as she does. I was shocked at what she said in the letter she sent back to me. Quote, I am 71 years old and I have been this way all my life. It will be hard for me to change, but I will try very hard. End quote. Can you believe it? Now dad is pretty much like a bump on a log. If he has any opinions about anything, you would never know it. He asked Paul what I was in the redacted now for. He just didn't get it that I have a redacted. See what I mean? Mom, well, I think she is trying to change for the better, only she doesn't know how and doesn't have any family who can help her. Except us. That's it. And I'm not sure if we can help her. What I do know is that Mom and Dad miss you so much. Believe me, I know how painful it can be to visit them. They have a lot of hurdles to cross over, many of whom they will never reach. But you can do something to help the relationships. Treat them as just who they are. You now know they cannot give you the emotional support you need. If 
Find it in others, like James, his parents, your friends, me. I will do my very best to be there for you in whatever way you need. You and me together. I think that's a very good team. We both have a lot we can give each other. Please don't pull away. We need to take Dad out for a lunch or dinner. You are not going to get any great things from the outing, but just knowing that Dad is who he is and he loves you and me very much. Don't wait until Christmas to have them or us over. Start now practicing on the new relationship with our parents. Believe me, you will be happier for it. Well, that's my sermon for the day. I hope you can understand what I mean about mom and dad. It may take a while before you can put the new plan into practice, but if I can, I know you can. I would really like to invite you and James over to see our new house, but I don't want you to come until I finish the decorating, hanging curtains, cleaning out the spare room where we have piled boxes, putting out flowers, and finishing the decks. Being gone, put me behind, but I promise we'll invite you over before Thanksgiving. Ha! I love you more than words can express, and I miss being with you and talking to you. I promise I'll call you more, and please call me more. We have a lot of years left, and I want to fill them with happy memories of you and me. Tell James hello, and I hope his job is still going great. I love him too, and I am so happy that you have him in your life. I guess the other two were just stepping stones to the best, because I think that is what he is. The best. I would love to go up to college and take Sarah out to lunch sometime. I will write her and see what her schedule is like. Well, call me sometime. I love you. Deborah. We can learn a lot from Deb's letter to Brenda. Her writing provides us with insight into her relationship with her sister, her relationship with her parents, and Brenda's relationship with her parents. And that's not all. We also learn something about the Courtney's computer from this letter. Something that were it not for listener Matthew Daly nearly resulted in this being the final episode of season eight. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This letter is the best insight we have into the family dynamics of the Courtney's near the time of their murders. As I mentioned, Deb's letter to Brenda was typed one month to the day before Lloyd and Agnes were killed. What we find is that Lloyd and Agnes seem to be, let's say, critical of their daughter's life choices. Quick to point out shortcomings and slow with a compliment. What I found to be the most insightful was the way Deb described her interaction with her parents on the day she and Paul purchased their first home. The way I read it, Deb was desperate for her parents' approval she thought that the purchase of the house was her ace in the hole. But it turned out not to be. I think this encounter says more about Deb than it does the Courtney's. Notice that she doesn't say that her parents were saying anything negative. They just didn't say what she wanted them to say. Quote, 
Remember when we bought, bought our, our first, first house, house and, and you, you, mom, dad, Margaret, Eddie, and babe came over? Paul and I still joke about it being the visit from hell. Neither mom or dad said how proud they were of us or how nice the house was. I cried for a long time after that. I think that was when Paul, Paul said, said, to hell, hell with, with both, both of them. them. End quote. It seems that Deb had set up in her mind how her parents were going to react to the purchase of the home. When they didn't meet her expectation, the encounter became the visit from hell in her mind and led to her crying for a long time. To be honest, I can completely understand the Courtney's lack of enthusiasm. While I was in the clerk's office last week, I was able to look through a massive pile of canceled checks that were in evidence. I didn't get a count of the total dollar amount or the total number of checks, but suffice it to say that there were a lot of them. The checks ranged from the mid-80s all the way up until 2001. It was a collection of all of the checks that Agnes and Lloyd had written either directly to Deb or to pay bills on her behalf. So I can totally understand why they may not be over-the-moon excited that Deb bought a house when they've been funding her life for decades. Another thing that we learned from the letter is that the rumors we've heard about the Courtney's having a falling out with Brenda seems to be true. The entire purpose of the letter seems to be Deb trying to intervene to help repair the relationship with her sister and her parents. From context, it appears that Agnes had written a letter to Brenda's college-age daughter, Sarah. And for lack of a better term, it pissed Brenda off. This is consistent with the interview notes that we have from Agnes's friend saying that Agnes disapproved of Brenda and Sarah's lifestyle. What we don't see in this letter is any indication of hostility or jealousy towards Brenda. In fact, we see the exact opposite. It appears that Brenda has all but cut off contact with the Courtney's and with Deb, and Deb is desperately trying to reconnect. I also found it intriguing that based on what we're seeing in this letter, another rumor may be true. I've heard, and for the life of me I cannot recall where I heard it, that Agnes and Lloyd adopted Brenda at Deb's request. Let me read you this small section of the letter. Quote, I had the rare chance to pick, pick my sister, and I have never regretted having picked you. I love you more than I could ever express, and I will always be by your side. You mean so much to me, and I hope that in the days and months to, to come, come, we can, can become closer. End quote. So she says here that she was able to choose her sister. So there may be some truth to the idea that adopting Brenda was in fact Deb's idea. It's been brought up before that at some point, the Courtney's changed the executor of their will from Deb to Brenda. That's been hypothesized that this could be a reason for animosity between the sisters and between Deb and her parents. Looking through the case file, I found a copy of the addendum to the Courtney's will, and it reads as follows. On this 12th day of August 1999, I declare Brenda Jill Stuckert, my daughter, as the executor of my estate. Previous to this date, other persons were named. This document is made to replace the original document. I am of sound mind and health, and this has not been done under duress of any kind from anyone. Brenda Jill Stuckert will be the executor of my state as of this date, July 22, 1998, for the following reasons. 1. She has a good head for finances. 2. She has shown fair and just methods of business. 3. She, I feel, will use reasoning in her decisions. If for some reason she cannot attend to this duty or a problem arises between the two daughters, then an independent executor will be appointed by both daughters, Brenda Jill Stuckert and Deborah Lynn Perringer being in agreement. 
The date of the change is August 12, 1999, over two years before Deb wrote this letter to her sister. Now, let me explain why this letter almost caused me to end this season after only 11 episodes. Last week, I spent hours scaling and analyzing the note that was stabbed into Lloyd's pant leg. Through my analysis, and I later found out that another listener had already done this work before me, and my findings confirmed his, I determined that the murder note was typed using a Times New Roman font with a size of 10 point. The margins were one and a quarter on each side and one inch on the top. At the time, this seemed like a very odd format to me. I was under the impression that the Microsoft Word default at the time was Times New Roman in 11 point, meaning that if the killer did in fact type the note on the Courtney's computer, or any computer for that matter, they would have had to change the font from the default. This seemed unlikely, and therefore it seemed just as unlikely that the note was typed on the Courtney's computer. But after I recorded last week's episode, I began doing research for this week. I found the dearest Brenda letter in the files and read through it a couple times before I noticed something startling. This is a note that we know that Deb typed on her parents' computer. There's no question about that. After reading the context of the letter, I began to take a closer look at the font. It was Times New Roman, and it seemed small. I went through the same process with the letter as I did with the murder note and determined that the settings were identical. Both were typed in a 10-point Times New Roman and both had one and a quarter inch side margins. Now at that point in time, I was still under the impression that the default was 11-point, which would mean that Deb changed the font when she typed the letter to Brenda in the exact same manner that the font was changed in the murder note. The proverbial nail in the coffin for Deborah. It was far too much of a coincidence that she had a proclivity for this odd-sized font which she wrote to her sister, and the killer had the exact same preference when they typed out the murder note. So, that was it. Our mission was truth, and I thought that we had found it. Five minutes later, I was on the phone with Allison Clayton to give her the news. Deb is guilty, and I will be making the announcement in this week's episode. Allison was of course upset, but also appreciative of the work that we've done. Like us, she only wants the truth, and the Innocence Project of Texas does not have time or resources to devote to helping guilty people. Then my next conversation was with Mike. As our producer, I had to give him as much notice as possible about a week in this instance, that the season was going to be over and we needed to find another case. Needless to say, I had a sleepless weekend. Not so much because I thought Deborah was guilty. I see figuring that out as just as much of a victory as if we had proven her innocence. To be honest, my biggest concern was facing the task of beginning a new case with less than two weeks lead time during a pandemic. The task seemed nearly impossible. But nonetheless, I refused to waste precious time and resources to help someone who's guilty. So I laid in bed staring at the ceiling for two nights. Until I saw a post by listener Matthew Daly. Matthew posted credible information that showed without a doubt that Times New Roman 10 point was actually the default in Word 97. Which was great, except we still had a problem. 
We don't know if the Courtney's had Word 97 installed or if they had Word 2000, which had a larger font as the default. Luckily, Matthew cracked the case, so to speak. He cracked the case of what the default font was on the Courtney's computer. Matthew was able to sort through all of the computer forensic reports that I posted on our website and determine with 100% certainty that Agnes and Lloyd were using Word 97, not the newer 2000 version of the software. So, where does that leave us? Well, to be honest, kind of right back where we started. With the notable exception that there is no smoking gun pointed at Deborah in regards to the murder note. And this is why. The murder note was typed in the default Microsoft Word 97 font, which means that it could have come from the Courtney's computer, but it also means that it could have come from literally any computer. You see, things weren't the same as they are now. Nowadays, most people who use Word have a Microsoft 365 subscription, which updates the program every time a newer version is available. Back in 2001, you had to go to a retailer like Best Buy and buy a disc with the Microsoft Office suite, and it was expensive. But the benefit was that once you had the disc, you had it. If you upgraded computers, all you had to do was pop your disc into the new machine and install the software on the new PC. And because of this, and because of the cost, a lot of people, myself included, would use the same version of Word for years. It wasn't worth the expense to upgrade. Case in point, the Courtney's. Agnes and Lloyd had a Hewlett-Packard Pavilion 6830. It came standard with a 20-gig hard drive and wasn't even released for sale until 2001. I wasn't able to find the date of the release, but it was announced that it would be released on January 18th of 2001, meaning it was a new computer. The Courtney's purchased it sometime in 2001. But Office 2000 went up for sale in June of 1999, two years earlier. So the year they were ultimately killed, Agnes and Lloyd bought a new computer. A new and improved version of Microsoft Word had been released two years before, but they still had their Word 97 disk. So they installed that rather than spend the money on the new software. Getting bored yet? Me too, so I'll wrap this up. At the end of the day, what we've learned from dissecting and comparing these two notes is that the murder note was printed on a computer running Microsoft Word 97, which if I had to guess, would be a large percentage of PC owners at the time. Now, can you make an argument that this information points to the murder note being printed at the Courtney's? Sure. But at this point, that cannot be proven, and it is easily argued against given the fact that it was typed using a widely popular default font. Can you make an argument that this information exonerates Deb? No, absolutely not. These findings do not exclude the Courtney's computer as the source of the note. Were these last 10 minutes an emotional roller coaster that I could have left you out of? Absolutely. But if I have to go through it, you're coming with me. That's how this works. You're welcome. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. Ch -ch 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 -chum. 
That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. The last thing that I want to touch on regarding the dearest Brenda note is the fact that I don't think Deb fully thought through typing it and saving it on her parents' computer. In the forensic report, it says that the file was created and saved on October 2nd, but it was last accessed on October 3rd, the same day that Agnes accessed another file in the My Documents folder. Which means that Agnes most likely read this letter where Deb tells her sister all about all the issues that she has with her parents. Which I'm assuming was awkward, to say the least. I would love to know if Agnes ever said anything to Deb about that letter. At the end of the day, I think that the letter is worthwhile reading. We get some insight into Deb's family relationships in her own words. And we also get a good look at how Deb types. This letter is perfectly capitalized, spaced, and punctuated, which is in direct contrast with the murder note. And then lastly, we know that at least a month before the murders, Deb was in a positive state of mind, trying to rebuild relationships and attempting to deal with conflicts with her parents in a positive way. Now that may have all changed in the coming 31 days, but on October 2nd, Deb just wanted everyone to get along. Continuing on with the computer forensics, I want to walk through really quickly another forensic document. This document lists all of the dates and times when the Courtney's computer was shut down. What I noticed right away is that literally half of the shutdowns from the time Agnes and Lloyd bought the computer occurred between the hours of 10.30 a.m. and 1.30 p.m., I think that this is worth looking at because I theorized that Agnes shut the computer down on the day she was killed because she was lying down for a nap. Deb, in a letter written to listener Kathy McElhaney and shared with me, says that it was part of her mother's routine to take a short nap every day sometime around lunchtime. So it doesn't appear that Lloyd and Agnes used their computer every day. From June 16th to November 2nd, they only shut the computer down 40 times. And 20 of those shutdowns occurred in the window of time that I just laid out. And the shutdowns do not appear to be done at the conclusion of work on the computer, at least in regards to the files of interest listed on the report. There are no instances when the computer was shut down immediately after any of these documents were created. And in many cases, the computer was left on for days after a file was created, especially if the work was done in mid-afternoon. I suspect that the reason for this is the difference between screensaver mode and sleep mode on the computer. For those of you who remember the PCs of the early 2000s, after several minutes of inactivity, the computer would go into screensaver mode. While in this mode, the computer was still on and the screensaver would move around the screen. The reason that I think this is what was happening on the day of the murders is because in this mode, the computer was loud and the screensaver was bright, which is a good reason to shut it down if you're trying to nap five feet away. But after a number of hours, the computer would go into sleep mode, where it all but shuts down. The screensaver shuts off, and the fan in the tower stops making noise. So no need to shut it down if you're trying to catch a few Zs. Hence why we don't see very many nighttime shutdowns. Moving through the rest of the computer information, I notice in looking at the shutdown log that the last shutdown before the murders occurred on October 31st at 11.34 a.m. 
Now, the reason that this caught my attention is because according to the forensic report, the computer was booted up just a few minutes before the last document was typed on it around 10 a.m. on the morning of the murders. My question to our computer experts is this. If the computer was last shut down on October 31st, and a document titled Dear Lord was accessed on the computer on November 1st, meaning it was turned back on the day after the shutdown, then how could it have been booted up on November 2nd? What I want to know is, is it possible that the boot up was someone waking the computer up from sleep mode as opposed to turning on the machine? To close things out for today, I think that I found an answer to one of our lingering questions. All of the talk about the font on the murder note began with a great catch by eagle-eyed listener Janaea Laws. Remember, she noticed that the printed document seen in the crime scene video was typed in a different font than the murder note. Since then, we've all become entirely too familiar with fonts, font sizes, and serifs. Well, I think now, finally, we can put the font issue to bed. In searching through the case documents, I came across an email that was sent by a member of Agnes's choir to the Fort Worth PD. In her email, she forwards an email that Agnes had sent to her on Halloween night. Her purpose seems to be to try to help the detectives piece together a timeline because she points out the timestamp of the email. Now, let me read to you the first four lines of Agnes's email to a woman named Danny. Danny, I keep getting messages that the email I sent you was returned, so here goes again. I sold 20 matinee tickets, $200, three adult evening, $45, eight senior evening, $96. Now, let me read to you the first few lines of the printed letter from the crime scene video. Danny, I sold 20 matinee tickets, $200, three adult evening, $45, eight senior evening, $96. The email is typed in the same font as the printed note, and minus a few edits, the text is the same. Someone correct me this week if I'm wrong, but if memory serves, back in the early 2000s, if you copied the text from an email and pasted it into a Word document, the pasted text would retain the font from the email. I believe that the reason the note we see in the crime scene video is typed in a font other than the Word default is because it was copied and pasted from this email. All of this font discussing has been taxing, to say the least. But it has been a necessary step in our process. This is exactly why Mike Ware told me that he believed this case was perfect for the Truth and Justice crowdsourcing audience. The case is full of holes and questions. And our process is to dissect every detail until we find the truth. And even though the font question may seem insignificant now, it was absolutely a potential lead. And together, we picked apart every detail until we found our answers. And now, it's time to move on to the next element of the case. Deborah Perringer's trial testimony. That's next week on Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show is created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. 
all of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kay Wood-Yomnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that always include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. To become a patron, just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. Lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I personally can be found on social media at BobRuffTruth, and Mike can be found at MurbGaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.